Well, as you're taking your seat, if I could invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Ephesians chapter 6, to the passage that just read for us a moment ago. As we are kind of wrapping up our study of the book of Ephesians, this is a letter we've been journeying through for the past few months, and we come now to the final passage here in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 21, and before we kind of dive into some of these dynamics, let me voice a, a prayer for us as we, as we get ready to do so. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, would you open up our hearts to receive what you have in store for us? Would you give us grace this evening to grow and to mature as followers of your Son, as those who love with an undying love the Savior? God, would you... Uh, give us grace over these next few moments. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not yet know the Savior and has not yet fallen in love with Christ, I pray that they would see themselves loved by Jesus and that they would fall in love in response. God, we ask and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we set out at the start of 2019. Many of you know this. We began our year just kind of recommitting ourselves to three passions three priorities, three convictions, three things that we're dialing in in the life of our church, the first one of which is concerns this idea of gospel clarity, uh, that we are a church that desires to cultivate gospel clarity. We want to explore the way Jesus gives shape to every area of our lives. So we want to cultivate gospel clarity together inside the church for the sake of the world around us. If we're not clear on the gospel, who's going to be clear on the gospel? And so we cultivate gospel clarity in our faith family. The second priority concerns this idea of, of missional engagement, kind of reasserting ourselves to live missionally, recognizing that every follower of Jesus has a role to play in Jesus' story, that we have a part to play in the script of redemption that is being written and being played out before us in human history over the time of our lives. And so we want to equip one another and encourage one another to make the most of the lives that they are living so that we might make disciples together and introduce more men and women to the love of the Savior so that more people People would come to trust him as you and I have. And then the third dynamic speaks to uh, this idea of falling in love with being the church all over again. We want uh, to fall in love with being the church, which is why we've been studying the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians kind of dials us into God's deep purposes for his people in the world. And as we've said over and over again, that the church is designed by God to make God's grace visible to the world around us. Now, all three of these priorities, all three of these convictions, gospel clarity, missional engagement, being the church, these have been a part of our DNA since the very beginning of our life together. Uh, when the Hallows Church birthed in February of 2012, this was very much a part of who we are. But we believed at the start of this year that it was time to kind of recalibrate and recommit ourselves to these priorities because, quite frankly, our church has experienced a lot of change in a short seven-year time frame. Uh, we've experienced a lot of change as a faith family. You just think about who we are today, and who we are today is not necessarily who we sought out, set out to become as a church in Seattle. You know that we are one church in what we call three expressions. We have our Fremont expression here, and then a few years ago, we had the opportunity to multiply into West Seattle, and we started our West Seattle expression, and then a couple of years ago... We had the opportunity to multiply northward, and so we landed in Edmonds and Shoreline area, starting the North Seattle Expression. And so one day we woke up and looked around, and we were a completely different church from who we set out to be when we started. We are one church in three expressions, and as a result, we've experienced multiplication. We've experienced movement. We've seen people uh, move into these other expressions and do those dynamics, and 
And then you also know that we've experienced movement and multiplication, not just within these, this dynamic of three expressions, but just in church planting in general. We've had the joy of planting a church in Des Moines, Washington, through Daniel and Stephanie Englehart, who continue to lead out the mountain church as God is giving grace to their work there, as they are making disciples. It's a wonderful thing to, to continue to support and to encourage as a church. But then we've also seen this happen internationally. We've been in the activity and the work of supporting church plants like in Japan, and we've had the opportunity to send missionaries to start new churches in other unreached places in the world. And so we have missionaries that we are supporting in Indonesia and elsewhere, and it's been a remarkable thing to see that type of movement and that type of multiplication as we think about what's happened over the past seven years that God in his providence has moved many people from our church for great, great reasons. And it's something that we prayed for when we set out to start, and it's something that we've longed for when we set out to, to, to begin the Hallows Church. In fact, when I was praying about planting and I was kind of press, uh, wrestling with my heart about what Jesus may have been calling me and others to do when we came together to start this work and to start this activity, one of the things that God called my attention to was the transient nature of our city. Uh, the fact that there is a regular rhythm, a regular ebb and flow of people coming in and going out in this part of the city specifically. And, and at first, he opened my eyes to the beauty of that, that if we could just position ourselves strategically in this city and make much of Jesus and love people for as long as we have them, then when God and his providence moves them along, whether it be for school or work or some other dynamic in the world, that they might go with the desire to make much of Jesus, having been influenced and impacted by our desire to cultivate gospel clarity and to live missionally and to be the church so that wherever people may land in the world, they would land with those convictions operating in their DNA as they have been exposed to our faith family and been a part of the things that we are doing. And so as I was praying about it back in, I guess, 2011, 2012, when we were landing here in Fremont, getting ready to start the church, it, it was very much a blessing. Uh, but over the course of seven years, there's a sense in which I, I struggle with the temptation to see it as a curse uh, because we're constantly saying bye to people. And uh, we're constantly seeing God do exactly what he said he was going to do when we set out to plant here, that he was going to move people all over the place. And he was going to give people to us, and he just wanted us to be faithful with them for as long as we had them. And then when God moves them on, let's celebrate that and let's see what God does all over the world. And so on one hand, it was a blessing, but my experience as a pastor where it's kind of turned into a curse and uh, because we have to learn to say goodbye a lot. And after you say goodbye to people over and over and over again, your emotional endurance begins to wear down. Uh, your missional throttle begins to, to lighten up. But but that's something that we in this city can't really afford to do because there's so many people around us. We still live in a densely populated area filled and surrounded by people who do not know the love of the Savior. And they need the friendship that we can give them in Christ. They need the gospel from our mouths to their hearts. They need to be invited into a community where they can see the love of Jesus flowing from person to person, people to people. They need exposure to what God is doing in the life of our church. And so we think about the ebb and flow. On one hand, it is a blessing. On another hand, it's kind of a struggle. And it's kind of a, uh, it's a hard thing because we say goodbye a lot. And I just want us to take a few moments together this, this afternoon and think about how we can say goodbye well. 
If that's a part of who we are, if that's part of kind of the location and the context that Jesus has placed us in, then it would be very good for you and I to learn how to embrace goodbyes and to see grace in saying goodbye so that we can make the most of the time we have together for as long as we have it together. I believe that God's grace can be made visible in the life of our church in a very unique way, in a very particular way, when we learn to say goodbye well, whether God is moving people across the globe by way of his providence to serve as a missionary or to serve as a church planter, or whether he's moving people across the globe because they've found a job and they've been relocated as a result of that dynamic, whatever the case may be, we want to recognize God's grace in goodbyes when he scatters his people from our proximity to all types of other places around the world so we can celebrate and we can make the most of the time that we have together for as long as we have it together. So three ways that God's grace is made visible in our goodbyes that I just want to give you tonight and I want to encourage your hearts with so that, so that you can continue to press in to all that God is doing in the life of our church. Uh, just give you three ways that God's grace is made visible in this dynamic. We'll pick up in verse 21 of Ephesians 6. Paul's landing the plane, and he's essentially saying goodbye to a friend of his, and he's wrapping up a letter that he's been writing to this church in Ephesus, and this is where it begins in verse 21. It says, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. We're introduced to this guy named Tychicus. Tychicus is the only other person mentioned in this letter aside from its author, a guy named Paul. He's the only other guy mentioned. He's the only other name listed in this little letter. And we first kind of meet Tychicus in the New Testament in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And there we learn that he was a native of the province of Asia. And at that point in time, Ephesus was the major hub. It was the major city in that area. And so Tychicus was from there. And now uh, he's hanging with Paul. It is not beyond the pale of possibility it's not beyond the realm of possibility for Tychicus to have been uh, an early convert, one of the first Christians to, one of the first persons to meet Jesus as Savior and as Messiah in Ephesus. It's not, it's quite possible that he came to meet Jesus when Paul was planting this church and he attached himself to Paul and the two men became friends. And so Tychicus would travel with Paul on Paul's third missionary journey. Tychicus would be running with him and walking with him and journeying with him. And here at the end of Ephesians, we find that while Paul is in prison and he's waiting trial, this guy Tychicus is right there with him, tending to him, caring for him. And and so we have him, but notice how Paul talks about him in verse 21. We were cued into Tychicus's, <laughs> say that fast, his, his reputation. That this guy's reputation was one that he was a dearly loved brother and that he was a faithful servant. That was his reputation. When you want to talk about saying goodbye, and if it ever comes to a point where you need to say goodbye and God in his grace is moving you on so that you have to say goodbye, would you, would you strive to leave behind a good reputation? Would you leave behind a good reputation? This is what Tychicus is doing here. He's leaving behind a good reputation. Now, when I use that word reputation, I know that has different connotations, and I know that a person's reputation is not always an accurate reflection of their character, that there can be a deep disconnect between what a person thinks about someone in public and how a person actually is. Prime example of this in our culture would probably be Bill Cosby. Uh, you're familiar with his story. He was a 
uh, comedian who was built a reputation on family values and different types of personal responsibility and, and championing all these uh, moral values and integrity, but it turns out that his public reputation was quite different from his internal character. And while he was putting forth and building this reputation in public, he was apparently engaged in a lot of sexual misconduct and a lot of sexual dysfunction that has landed him in prison. So we know that reputation is not always a reflection of character. This is true for a person on the individual level. It can also be true of churches. It can also be that a church's public reputation doesn't match up with the character and the internal dynamics of that church. One example in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. We're introduced to the church of Sardis. And listen to what is said about this church. I know your work. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So there was a disconnect between the church's reputation and the church's character. So we want to recognize that. We want to be aware of that so that we don't fall into that rhythm. But when you come to Tychicus here in this passage, you don't find that disconnect. You don't find a gap between his reputation and his character. What Paul says of him and what the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to affirm in this moment is a man with a good, God-honoring reputation. We find in Tychicus that his reputation was the outworking of his character. It was the outworking of his character. We, we see this when he's described as being a dearly loved brother and a faithful servant. But here's the qualifier. He was a brother and a servant in the Lord. And that's the key. His character, his identity in the Lord or in Christ, that was working itself out in public. It was working itself out in his community. It was working itself out in his relationships with everyone that he came in contact with. So there was no disconnect between his, reflect, his reputation and his character because his reputation was the outworking of his character. And that's what we want. We want who we are in Christ to drive who we are in every other setting in life. Let our reputation become the outworking of our character, of who we are declared to be, who we are called to be, who are we affirmed to be in Christ. And so you think about Tychicus. He's here about to leave Paul. They're about, these two men are about to say goodbye, and, and he's certainly leaving behind a reputation. And there's a couple of ways that I think that this played out and some ways that it can play out in our context Way for you to leave behind a good reputation. You can do this by being fully present wherever you are. By being fully present wherever you are for however long you were there. This is what we're told, that Tychicus was a dearly loved brother. See, to be loved is to be known. This means for as long as he was hanging with Paul or as long as he was hanging with the church at Ephesus, who probably knew this guy by now, that wherever he was, he was fully present and if you are going to leave behind a good reputation, you need to be fully present. You need to be involved. You need to be loved. You need to be known. You see, to be loved is to be known. And Tychicus had the types of relationships where people knew who he was. And the beauty of that is that when you are willing to be known, when you are sinking into community, when you are being fully present with the people that you're running with, when that happens, other people can help identify blind spots and they can help identify any gap or any tension that may exist between your reputation and your character. We need each other to shrink that gap. 
If we are living our lives not being known, and if we are in the church and we are unknown, that is a dangerous place where your reputation and your character can part ways. Where assumptions about the type of person you are, assumptions about the type of character you have can be made and they may not be true. So if you're going to leave behind a positive reputation, you've got to be fully present. This means you have to be fully present wherever you are for however long you are. Sometimes I have conversations with college students who, when they come into the city, they know they're only going to be here for a short while, and they wonder, well, do I really need to plug into community? Do I really need to get involved in a church? I'm only going to be here for a very short amount of time. And, and for many of these college students that I've talked with over the years, that, that has been the case. They've only been here for a short amount of time. But my counsel in those moments is for them not to waste the time that they do have here. That they are not so future-focused and thinking about what's going to change in the future that they forget to live in the present. You see, one of the things about being followers of Jesus is that we worship a God who is eternal. We have worship a God who is outside time. We worship a God who insists that his people be fully present wherever they are. We are, we are warned over and over and over again in the scriptures about how not to presume tomorrow. Not to assume that tomorrow is coming. Not to assume that my plans for next year are going to flesh out. We're constantly warned against that because when we are so future focused and planning out our lives and thinking about what's going to change, we overlook the moments and we overlook the present. And when we're not engaged in the present, you're not going to grow. You're not going to mature as a Christian. So we want to be focused on where we are for as long as we are. We want to be fully present, nurturing relationships, stepping into community. But in addition to being fully present, if we're going to leave behind a good reputation, we want to be faithful servants. We want to be fully present, and we want to be faithful servants. Again, this is Tychicus' story. This is his example. He's being asked by Paul to carry this letter, the book of Ephesians, back to the church at Ephesus. He's going to travel a long ways, and that trip isn't going to be easy. But Paul knows Tychicus well enough at this time that he knows Tychicus can be, can be trusted with this task. You see, back in the first century, they didn't have email. They didn't have text messaging. They didn't have all the ways that they can communicate and, and transmit messages and send various things to different people in different places. No, they relied upon uh, just common, ordinary carriers. They relied mainly upon people who just happened to be traveling in the direction that you need to send something. And so a lot of times people didn't really know who they were giving their stuff to to be taken to another location and to be delivered to a certain people. And a lot of times their stuff wouldn't get delivered because a lot of these unknown anonymous character or carriers would, be, would prove themselves to be untrustworthy. There's a guy by the name of Cicero, a philosopher back in the first century B.C. He was talking to another guy named Atticus who was a, another philosopher. And he was talking about how hesitant he was to send things uh, the ordinary ways that you had to send things back in that day. Listen to what he said. He said, I've been slow about sending one that is a letter for lack of a safe messenger. He didn't have anyone trustworthy to give his stuff to. Then he says, there are few who can carry a letter of weight without lightening it by by." taking some for themselves. He's saying people can't be trusted. And so for Paul to ask Tychicus to carry this letter and to bring this update back to Ephesus, it meant he was trustworthy. It meant he was reliable. It meant he was loyal. It meant he was faithful. 
So when he is going to leave, he's going to leave a good reputation because not only was he fully present, he was a faithful servant. And that's where we want to roll. That's where we want to be. We want to be faithful with the assignments that are given to us. We want to be faithful to, to the commitments that we make to others and the commitments that we make to the church. So if you have a role or a responsibility, let me encourage you to discharge your duties with fidelity, with loyalty, with dependability. You see, good intentions do not create a good reputation. There are a lot of people with good intentions. I like what Henry Ford said when he, he mentioned that you can't build a reputation on what you are going to do. That your good intentions mean nothing when it comes to nurturing a good reputation. In many ways, your good intention may actually undercut the good reputation that you hope to create because you're committing yourselves to things and you're wanting to do things, but you never follow through. And all of a sudden, you're not viewed as reliable. You're not viewed as loyal. You're not viewed as a faithful servant. And that can deteriorate your reputation in the long run. And so we want to think about this. We want to examine our hearts. We want to ask ourselves, am I being faithful Am I being faithful and trustworthy with the assignments that have been given to me? Am I following through with what I say I'm going to do? Am I keeping my commitments in my relationships with others? This is how we leave behind a good reputation when the day comes and we have to say goodbye. We are fully present and we are faithful servants. But then there's a second dynamic. Not only if we're going to say goodbye, do we want to leave behind a good reputation? If we have to say goodbye, we want to move in a Godward, we want to move forward in a Godward direction. We want to move forward in a Godward direction. And here's what I mean by this. When you look at verse 22, it says, Paul says, I am sending him, that is Tychicus, meaning he's commissioning him. He's, he's sending his pal back to Ephesus. He says, I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. In other words, Tychicus wasn't leaving Paul. He was going for Paul. There's a big difference between leaving and going. There's a huge difference between leaving and going. Those who leave step away from things, step out of things. But those who go step into things, step toward things. And if we're going to move in a Godward direction, we got to recognize that Christians don't leave anywhere. As Christians, we are not called to leave. We are always called to go. Because we're not just wandering aimlessly through this world. We go with purpose. We go with intentionality. We go with a drive to make much of Jesus with as much time as we are given in this world. So if we ever have to say goodbye, we're going to move in a Godward direction that says, I'm not leaving, I'm going. And there's a big difference between the two. We want to go on purpose when we make transitions, when we change jobs, when we change homes, when we change neighborhoods, when we change cities, when we change states, when we change countries. We want to go with purpose. And the reason why you and I are never should leave but always go is because we're following the Savior, right? If you're following Jesus, you are going wherever he's leading. You are going wherever he's guiding. You are going in the direction that he is paving you for you to go in. So we don't leave. We go. We go on purpose. This is, again, Tychicus' story. He's being sent. He's being commissioned. He's not leaving Paul. He's going on purpose. So when you think about your life and you're discerning God's will and you're having to make decisions and you're praying through, what, what am I supposed to do? I have these two job opportunities. I have these two homes I could choose. I have these two neighborhoods I could live in. I have these, all these options. How do you navigate that? Well, assume the posture of a goer and not a lever. 
And if you are assuming the posture of a goer, when you are praying through that decision, one dominant question is going to occupy your mind. You're going to prayerfully consider which one of these options will enable me to most effectively make disciples of all nations. Which one of these options is going to put me in the best position to love people and to serve people in the name of Jesus? When you're working through a decision, this is how I encourage every disciple to pray and to think when they're trying to decide between options. Will they be more effective in making disciples of all nations? This is the disciples' drive because as disciples, we are called to make disciples. We've been given a mission that nobody else in this world can fulfill. Other people can do your job, but nobody can carry out your calling as a follower of Christ. This world needs the church to be the church, and the way we be the church is by going on purpose anytime we go anywhere for any reason. So we want to move in a Godward direction, meaning we want to take into consideration what is God's will, what is his plan, what is his purpose, what has he called me to do, and how will this decision enable me to do that? That's what we process, that's what we think, that's how we grow and mature as followers of Christ. But not only do we go in purpose, go on purpose, we move in a Godward direction when we commit to being an encouragement. Wherever we go, we are going to be an encouragement This was, again, Tychicus' story. He's going, and Paul says, I'm sending you so that you can be an encouragement, so that you can encourage their hearts, so that you can bring courage and strength and perspective and blessing to the people that you were going to. We think about this because anytime there's a transition and we go somewhere, there's a temptation for you to step into that new setting and to step into that new context and be looking back. And you begin to long and dream about all the things that you left behind, all the things that you've loved about where you previously were. And now you're in a new place and not everything's the same. And and you can get a little frustrated by that. You can get annoyed by the fact that things aren't the same wherever you land or wherever you go in life. But if you're thinking in this direction, if you're moving in a Godward direction, you're going to be aware of that. You're going to know that when you go anywhere, there's going to be change. Not everything is the same. And if you spend your time looking back, hoping to replicate what was, you will never fully, you will never fully encourage what is. And you've got to think about how your strengths and how your experiences and how your passions and how your perspectives can bring courage and strength to the body of Christ wherever you land in the world. So you want to think about, okay, if we're going, we're going to go and we're going to be an encouragement. I'm not going to look back and hope that that what I had then will be replicated here. No, I'm going to take what I learned then and I'm going to apply it here. I'm going to be an encouragement to the people that I'm now journeying with. I think when a Christian decides to move and they relocate their lives for any reasons, I think one of the chief things they should think about is what church they're going to be a part of. I think they should do their due diligence in seeking out, okay, what faith family does God want me to step into and to be an encouragement of? How can I build others up? How can I breathe life wherever I go? This is what the Christian thinks about. And when we make a move, we're moving in a Godward direction because we want to be an encouragement wherever we go. And then the third dynamic that I want to give you, not only do you want to leave behind a good reputation, Not only do you want to move forward in a Godward direction, you want to look toward an eternal reunion. And this is when things get really good for the Christian. 
This is when saying goodbye isn't really that hard. Because you get into verse 23 and you begin to find something very special here. Verse 23, peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you say goodbye, you want to look toward an eternal reunion. You want to remember that you and I, we all belong to the same family. Paul uses familial language in this text. He refers to brothers and sisters. He refers to God as our father, saying, look, we belong to the same family. And if we say goodbye in this life, we know that that goodbye, that parting of ways is only temporary because there's coming at the end of time a family reunion for everyone who knows God as Father, for everyone who trusts Jesus as Savior. There's coming a day where we are all reunited as family. This is a reality. This is a reality for the Christian. The church isn't like family. It's not an analogy. It's not a metaphor. The church is family. And we are bound together by the blood of Christ. That makes us an eternal family. And though we may part ways in this life and we may say goodbye in this world, there's coming a day when we will be reunited. We will experience a family reunion forever and always. And so we keep that perspective when we're moving in these directions, when we have to say goodbye. And when you look at what Paul is saying here, not only is he reminding us that we all belong to the same family, he's also dialing in to these four aspects of our DNA. Because we are part of the same family, we share the same DNA. And that our DNA is the same wherever we are in this world. This DNA connects us forever and always. And you might see four words there that speak to our DNA as a family of faith. On one hand, you have peace mentioned there. This is something that's... that's crucial to who we are as followers of Jesus is the family of God. We are people of peace. We are enjoying peace with God. We are enjoying peace with one another. We are engaging the world that is with a peace that transcends all understanding, a peace that cannot be knocked out by circumstance or situation. We are a people of peace. That is part of our DNA. But not only are we a people of peace, we are a people of love. We are those who love God and love one another. We are those who love our neighbors as ourselves. This is true for all of God's people in every setting in the world. We are people of peace. We are people of love. And not only we are people of love, we are people of faith. We know that we, along with every other Christian in the world, every other follower of Christ on the planet, that we live by faith, not necessarily by feelings. That we are people of faith, and it is our faith that drives us to make good decisions. It is people of faith that drives us to obey Jesus. It is as people of faith that drives us to do things that God is telling us to do. And sometimes when you have to say goodbye, you will, every time you have to say goodbye, you have to exercise faith. You have to trust the Lord, not just believing that God exists not just believing that Jesus lived and died and rose again, but actually aligning your life with those realities so that those realities shape who you are. You are trusting, not just believing. This is what it means to be people of faith. But then there's a fourth dynamic to our DNA there in verse 24 where he reminds us of the grace of God. It's one of the most beautiful words in all of the English language. It's one of the beautiful, most beautiful realities in all of the universe, this idea of grace I'll give it to you in an acronym form that I've heard before, and you've probably heard it. But grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is God's kindness. It is God's goodness. It is God's blessing of his people. 
not on the basis of who they are and what they are like, but on the basis of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. This is what grace is. So you and I, we journey through this world together as family with every other Christian in the world, as family enjoying the grace of God. This makes us humble. This makes us grateful. This makes us able to rectify conflicts and resolve any interpersonal issues because we're people of grace. We've been treated so well. And God has not treated us on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of Jesus. And so how do you treat one another? Well, you treat one another not on the basis of each other's merit. You treat each other on the basis of Jesus' merit. This is what makes our family unique. So when we say we belong to the same family, we're saying some deep things about who we are as people. People of peace, people of love, people of faith, people of grace. This is who we are. And what makes that possible is the fact that we all love the same Savior. What creates this DNA within us is the fact that we love with an undying love the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the one who lived the life that you and I could not live. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. And as we put our faith and our trust in him, we become a part of this family. We step into this new DNA, this new reality. We become new people. And so we belong to the same family and we love the same Savior. And because of all of this, we know there's coming a day when, though we may part ways in this life, we will be reunited in the next. So we want to think about how we say goodbye. We want to think about transition. We want to think about change in the world that is so that when we say goodbye, we can say goodbye in a way that showcases grace, in a way that's in line of who, with who we are in Christ, in a way that's in line with who we are called to be as the church. We want to leave behind good reputations. We want to move forward in a Godward direction. We want to Look toward our eternal reunion. I love how Jesus said goodbye. Maybe you haven't thought about it, but Jesus said goodbye to his disciples. And he said goodbye in a way that showcased the grace of God. Consider John chapter 14. Jesus is having one of his final conversations with his disciples. Essentially, he is saying goodbye. And listen to what he says to them. In John chapter 14, in verses 1 through 3, we read this passage. I think, yes. And <laughs> don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. They know he's about to leave, and it is very tempting for them to become anxious and frustrated and resentful with the fact that Jesus is leaving. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you, I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am... You may be also. Do you hear grace in Jesus' goodbye? He's leaving behind a good reputation. He even encourages the disciples, look, if what I'm saying isn't true, I wouldn't tell it to you. Why is that? Because his character and his reputation were in sync. There wasn't a disconnect between who they viewed him to be and who he actually was. He was leaving behind a good reputation. But he was also moving in a Godward direction. He was going to do what the Father had laid out for him to do. He would go to the cross. He would give up his life. He would rise from the grave, and he would keep rising. And he would take his seat at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all of reality. 
And he says in this moment, while I am there, I'm going to prepare a place for my people. I'm going to get everything set up for a party to happen. Because a party is going to happen one day. And so what does he say to his disciples? I want you to look toward an eternal reunion. There's coming a day when I come back and each of you will have a, each of you will have a place in my house. You will be with me. I will be with you. We will be together forever. That's the eternal reunion for the Christian. This is where grace comes in our goodbyes. Just as Jesus would leave behind a good reputation, so do we. Just as Jesus would move in a forward a Godward direction, so would we. Just as Jesus would look toward an eternal reunion, so would we. I love a conversation that happened between a guy named C.S. Lewis and his pal, Sheldon Van Alken. Sheldon Van Alken was one of his students at Oxford, and the two were good friends, but Lewis was more of his mentor. And Van Alken wrote a book called A Severe Mercy, and in this book he describes his final conversation with C.S. Lewis. The two went to a pub, and they shared a meal together, and they enjoyed time talking about the nature of life and the nature of death, having some rich conversation. When the meal was over, they walked outside, and they knew they were parting ways. They knew they would not see each other after that moment, most likely. And C.S. Lewis walks him out onto the street, and he looks over at his friend Van Alken, and he says, I'm not going to say goodbye to you because we're going to meet again. And then Lewis just kind of sprinted across the street. And as he sprints across the street, traffic runs by, and Van Alken kind of lost sight of him. And, but when the traffic passed, and, and he looks, and he catches Lewis one more time. Lewis doesn't really look back. He just kind of holds his hand in the air. And he says, besides, Christians never say goodbye. Christians never say goodbye. You see, we, we don't so much say goodbye as we say, see you later. This is what we say to every Christian that we part ways from in this world, whether it's due to geography or even if it's due to death. We never say goodbye to a Christian. We only and always say, see you later. So we want to think about this in the life of our church. We have a unique opportunity to find great grace in the goodbyes of our faith family. If they must be said, let's say them well. Let's leave behind a good reputation. Let's move forward in Godward directions, and let's look toward an eternal, an eternal reunion. Let's pray together.